to help clean the closet here. Our closet is an unmitigated disaster. So um, ever since Tony Mammon left, we are in a lurch. But I'm sure God will raise up some new uh, people. We can get this closet under control. Uh, just told Taylor, I believe it's a black hole that just seems to be ingesting everything that goes in there. But we will get there. So with that said, um, let's get into our lesson today. And um, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It'll be the passage we'll be looking at. Well, we're going to be looking at two primary passages. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. So you can keep your finger in those two areas and bookmark it. But let's open in prayer. Heavenly gracious Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word. Thank you for the food that we just received, for the fellowship we have. Um, and we thank you, God, that, Lord, as we about to examine this uh, difficult subject, we pray, God, that you would give us insight and wisdom. And, um, Lord, give us humility. And uh, may we examine this topic with the utmost of integrity, in Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're going to cover the topic. It's the final topic in the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, and I decided to extend this a little bit because I felt as if we, we really need to dissect both of these topics. Last week, we, last time we met, we spoke about prophetic utterances, and I think it was important to establish what we call the sign gifts. I would write up on the board if I had my marker, but I do not. And with, yeah, if you could find that'd be great, brother. Um, but the sign gifts are those gifts which are signs. They're miraculous. They're, they have, there is a supernatural power to them. So the nature of prophecy. And what we're going to talk about today is speaking in tongues. Uh, there is something miraculous. And I, and I say that speaking in tongues is a sign gift. Because turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14. at verse 21 1 Corinthians 14 21 and the law is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me says the Lord thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign for not a sign for unbelievers but believers so so again, we, we go back to this idea of a sign gift. It's a sign that points to something other than itself. And so we're going to look at the first example of how this sign worked um, with the gift of glossolalia. Thank you, brother. Turning your Bibles to um, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, um, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from the heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as 
The Spirit gave them utterance. Underline that in your Bibles. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. Underline that. Under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Underline that. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those, or these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking, saying, well, they're filled with new wine. All right, so there's a few things going on here, right? The first thing we know is Pentecost. Right? And Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. And it's the, it is the festival of uh, ingathering. Right? The crops are gathered in. And, and in this festival, it was a big festival. People from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate. But as Christ had promised, he told the his people, wait in the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Uh, for the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon the church. And so uh, it was on the day of Pentecost. They were in the upper room. They were praying. And the Holy Spirit rushed upon them with a dramatic um, exposition here. We see that that uh, uh, there was an appearance of what seemed to be like uh, divided tongues of fire. And um, there was a rushing wind. Uh, we know that in Hebrew, ruach is the same word for wind and spirit. The same in, in Greek, pneuma is the same word for wind and spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes in. And as a result, they begin to speak in other tongues. Now, I think it's important because we see often this word tongues, which in Greek is the word glossa. Right? Where do we... Um, where do we get the word glossary? What do, can you think of an English version of that? Glossary. glossary. What's a glossary? It's a list of terms, right? Remember when you were children, you went to school, you went in the back of your book, and there's a glossary of all the words that are being used. It basically underscores the reality of language, right? And I think this is important because the word glossa Whenever it is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, always means language. And for some reason, it is interchangeable, where at times it says speaking in tongues, and then in another time it says we hear them speaking in our own language. Why the interpreters, or the translators, I should say, um, do this is, is, is a question mark, and I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to answer that in a moment. But if you can demystify this concept of speaking in tongues with simply saying speaking in languages it would 
it would resolve a lot of the problems that we have in understanding what speaking in tongues is. Glossa is the term language. Now, I think this is important because there is a redemptive purpose for what's taking place here. This is not merely a show with the spectacular to impress upon people. It's a sign. It's a sign to unbelievers. It is a sign that the gospel has come to them, that the kingdom of God is upon them, that the Holy Spirit is here, that the new messianic age has arrived, and it is a sign to believe in Christ. It is a sign that something dramatically different is taking place. We are no longer under the law, but we are now under grace. We are no longer under Moses. We're under Christ. There is a fundamental shift taking place. And at the Feast of Pentecost, this shift is unfolding before us. Now, language has a very important part in redemption history. Go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, and it'll help us to understand exactly what we mean and what has taken place. In Genesis chapter 11, somebody read just verse 1 really loud. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. There it is. The whole world had one language. Right? Everybody, this was, the earth was young, people uh, had not yet developed into nations, and it says that the whole world, that means everybody that existed under God's creation, spoke one language. By the way, when I was in secular university, I remember taking a course on anthropology, and, and our professor was a linguistics expert, and, and, and it is a proven fact that all languages, all human languages, can be traced to one common language. So this isn't just what God's word is saying, which we know is the ultimate truth. Right? Well, written, you know, that's the Bible. We, you know, people don't trust God's word. We trust God's word. We presuppose that God's word of God is true. But linguists have actually said, yes, this is true. They affirm it through studies. You could find the common branch that all languages point to one common language that originated and started it all. So at one time, all the people of the earth spoke one language. Now listen to what verse 2 says. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitmune for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold... They are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, so they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what took place at Babel? Somebody tell me, what took place? Go ahead. It spread across. But what does the scripture tell us? What were they doing? What, what, what specifically? They were giving a high 
What was their purpose? Yeah, specifically in the text, what was the purpose? Very good. Very good. What else? It's, they want to make a name for themselves. Bingo. All Everything you guys said is right. But it says they want to make a name for themselves. They had lost the bigger mandate, which was that God created man in his image. So what? So we could make God's name great. So we could magnify the name of God. Our, our role in creation is to reflect the glory and image of God is to make God great. But sin corrupts that image bearing that it becomes inverse. We want to make a name great for ourselves. And so the unity demonstrated this autonomy. There's nothing we cannot do. Let's build a tower to heaven. Whether they actually believe they would get to heaven or not is, it, is inconsequential. The, the size of the tower was symbolic, like all great towers of human achievement and human power and autonomy. Right? I think did anybody hear this week that the leaning tower of Pisa is gonna is actually leaning over completely, it's gonna fall soon. So, you know, if that was a great tower, right? And foundation was a little faulty, it fell. But you know, whether it's the and most people believe that the Tower of Babel was probably an ancient ziggurat, right? You've seen ancient ziggurats um in, in, in different pictures. Um and most people believe that it's it was uh, one of the ziggurats in, in Iraq today, which would have been ancient Babylon. Uh, and so God came and he confused the language and divided their languages. He divided their tongues. Thus, the human race divides. If you read from verse 10 of chapter 11 um, all the way down to verse 31, it tells us how the, the nations divided, how people went their own way. And then you get to chapter 12, and what does God do? He chooses one person. And he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. He calls... Abraham, a Semite, and he sets him apart, a Hebrew, and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make reveal myself to you, I'm going to make a promise to you, and through your people, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? Go to chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The word nation wasn't really developed at that point in history. So the term families represented all the tribes, all the different peoples of under the sun whose tongues were divided. Right? So you see here that, that this is the origin of the human race. The curse of sin brought about division. It brought about separation. It brought about confusion. That's what sin does. You get to Acts chapter 2 and what we see there is the great reversal of the curse of Babel. God is reversing the confusion and now the church is being able and, and divinely enabled to speak in languages Lelia, right? Glossolalia is the term speaking in tongues. This word Lelia means speak, right? So they were able to speak in tongues. They were able to speak languages that they never learned. These were Galileans, these were not educated people, but they were enabled to speak in the dialects and the languages of all the people who come from all the nations who spoke different languages and dialects to Jerusalem to worship God. And what are they hearing? What are they hearing? Their own 
familiar languages to them. Familiar, but what is it, what is the content of what they're hearing? The mighty works of God. What do you suppose that is? The gospel. Because we know Peter goes around the next few verses. They say, well, what do these things mean? He goes, I'm telling you guys, these men are not drunk. Let me tell you what this is about. And he preaches the gospel. He preaches Christ crucified. He preaches Christ risen from the dead. He preaches uh, 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 Christ the son of David. And more importantly, he tells him at the end that all of this is a sign to point you to the fact that you need to repent. Go back to Acts chapter 2. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know therefore for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same gift that they just received, is you will receive it. And I want you to notice how significant that is, that upon placing your trust in Christ, you receive the gift of the Spirit. It's not an ancillary experience. It's not a secondary experience. It happens at the moment of conversion. If you believe and trust in Christ, you also will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, um, going on, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for what? The forgiveness of your sins. He's preaching the gospel. Verse 39, for the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone from the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now go back to Acts chapter 1. Any questions up to that point? Any comments or questions? We see the first manifestation of speaking in tongues. Now secondly, go back to Acts chapter 1. Now notice when Christ ascends to heaven, he gives a mandate to the church. I guess it's the second, the sequel to the Great Commission. He said to him in verse Acts 1-7, It is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in what? Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is important because that is the outline of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is an outline the gospel goes forth first in Jerusalem. We just saw that there. And then it goes to Samaria, or first to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the world. You get to the end of Acts and you have Apostle Paul. He's in Rome. He's preaching the gospel. All right, so it starts in Jerusalem and winds up in Rome. But each step along the way marks a milestone in the progress of the gospel in the book of Acts. And each of those milestones is marked by, guess what? The sign of glossolalia, the sign of speaking in tongues. Get, yeah. Um, so, can we say that that gift does it still exist now? And I, and I was just thinking of like uh, we have um, the people we, uh, in in, the, in Papua New Guinea. You know, they are learning a different language to spread the gospel to people that haven't ever heard the gospel. Can you, is it the same thing, or it's totally different? Um. I'll get to that part two. 
So, so that that's the that I'm laying out right now the historical groundwork of where this gift, how it developed in Acts. And then we're going to look at the second part of this is the question: Does this gift still exist today? And if so, in what form? That is the question. I know we, you guys just want me to get through and get to the end, right? <laughs> Hold, hold your horses, because I think it's important. What I'm laying out now is going to answer that question. But I'm answering the question slowly. Right? Because we need to know the f- purpose of what this sign gift what is the sign pointing to? What is the significance of it? So go to Acts chapter um, Acts chapter 8. And um, we see again the gospel. Philip goes to, um, he goes to uh, um, Samaria and he preaches the gospel. Um, And it says here, verse 14, Acts chapter 8, 14, and when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone else on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And when they testified and spoke in the word of God, to the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And so, and so what we have here is a mini Pentecost and they preach the gospel and they lay their hands and people receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, this was the same, it was a mini version of what took place earlier in Jerusalem and it is, it is the, uh, the first of, of several mini Pentecosts. The next one is in Acts chapter 11 where now Peter is preaching to a Gentile and he preaches to a Gentile, and um, that is the uh, um, that is the Roman centurion, um, Cornelius. I'm sorry, God drew a blank for a moment. And um, God sends him to preach the gospel. And he, you know, Peter didn't want to go. He's like, listen, they're filthy pagans. What am I going to go there for? They're unclean. I'm going to be defiled. God says, don't call unclean what I say is clean. And he goes, and they hear the good news. Um, and it says here um, in verse, um, I'm sorry, verse 44, Acts 10, 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing his people who have received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, in Acts chapter 19, you have a final 
uh, mini Pentecost. And you notice it gets smaller and smaller as time goes on. Um, in, in chapter 19, you know, we go from thousands of people in Jerusalem now to Ephesus. And you have a similar version here where men who were disciples of John the Baptist who never heard the gospel hear it. They hear about the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 6 that the Holy Spirit came upon them and they started speaking in tongues and prophesying. That is the last we hear of speaking in tongues in the New Covenant. In fact, historically through the church, we never hear about it again until 1906 in Azusa Street in Los Angeles. It ended after that. It ended after the first century. We're going to look at the next question, but, but these were mini versions. What were they doing? It was outlining the milestones. The gospel is going to go forth to Jerusalem, then Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the world. And in each milestone as the gospel progresses, it's telling us that God is undoing the curse of Babel. He's uniting all nations together under Christ, under Messiah, in the kingdom of God. And that, and that the, the, the prophecies of old where all the nations will gather to worship God as one is coming to fulfillment. Christ is gathering the nations. He's gathering Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. He's bringing people, look at our church, we're from all different backgrounds and nationalities, and he brings us together as one. We speak the same language. I'll give you this example. I was in, um, I was in the Metropolitan New York Baptist Association meeting some years ago, and I remember we were discussing um, um, contextualism. Anybody familiar with contextualism is? Yes. Go ahead, Brother Jay. Not quite. Not quite. Contextualism. Anybody else want to take a shot? All right. Contextualism is a fancy word within the church. And it basically means minister within the context you're in. Contextualize the gospel. All right. So, so you know, if I'm in a rich, white, upscale neighborhood, I'm going to contextualize for that group. If I'm in a Spanish-speaking neighborhood... In the Bronx, I'm going to modify the ministry to that group. Or if I'm in a Korean group in Queens, I'm going to modify the gospel for that group in Queens. In other words, you, you work within the con contextual framework to contextualize the gospel to the cultural demands of that context. Now, it might sound uh, spiritual on its forefront, but I think it's horrible because it divides the body of Christ. And so when they went around, they were talking about the different language, they were talking about the different context and how they communicate what language they speak to people in their context uh, to get them to, to disciple them. And they came to me and they said, well, what language do you speak? How do you communicate? How do you contextualize? I said, we speak one language at Grace and Truth. And like, what's that? Gospel language. That's all we talk. We talk gospel language. We talk Christianity. We talk the Bible it's, it's a common language. It unites us all. It's, we're, not into, we're very multicultural. And, and we're not looking at our cultural backgrounds to unite us. We're looking to the Word of God. And that's what makes a difference. All right. Any questions uh, before I move on? Go ahead, Pastor. Supernatural language, 
the language that is, cannot be understood, and that helps me uh, and my own uh, journey through uh, on this matter of tongues. I could only say, maybe you'll get on this later, but I've been in the presence of people speaking in tongues and gibberish ten times, and every time uh, I, uh, I won't go any further. Yeah, it's, it, it, listen, I was a Pentecostal, I, I was a Catholic. Then I became a Pentecostal, and then I became a Baptist. So my journey has been uh, quite interesting over my lifetime. So I have a little background as a Catholic, a little background as a Pentecostal. I've been Baptist most of my life, so I'm, I'm pretty firmly convinced that that's, you know, Baptist theology is biblical theology. And, um, you know, but, but in my short experience as a Pentecostal, I was exposed to a lot of the, the, the and I don't want to call it, I would call it this, it's ecstatic speech. Let me write this down. For those of you who never heard of the term. Ecstatic speech. Anybody know what ecstatic speech is? Anybody ever hear that term before? Okay, ecstatic speech, ecstatic utterances is rooted in paganism. In ancient paganism... And you may even see it in some New Age um, religions today and pagan religions today. Um, and I remember years ago watching a video on this. I tried searching on YouTube. It doesn't exist. I know if I call Pastor Ed Moore, he has it on VHS. VHS, I'm dating myself here, right? <laughs> but I remember seeing it for the first time. And it showed a group of pagans, of, uh, people who were animistic in their religion. Um, they're idolaters in, 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 in a remote African tribe. And 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 if and what they were doing was they were having a, an ecstatic uh, uh, experience, Ecsta ecstasy, or ecsta where's, which is where it comes from, is where you you kind of let yourself just go, you know, you you let go of all inhibition, you let go of all restraint, and you just you know let the feelings flow from you, and you just you let it out, and you start moving in crazy ways, and I'm uh, me by let the syllables roll out, and it. And it, it's a way of pagan, is, pagan worship expresses itself. And it was very common in the first century. And what happened was a lot of these pagans with this background of ecstatic speech were getting converted. They were becoming Christians and they were importing the ecstatic speech utterances from their previous experience and Christianizing them. And as we get to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to address exactly the problem. You look at 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter is almost half the chapter is written about speaking in tongues. And if you look at the outline of everything Paul says, basically everything Paul says to regulate the gift of speaking in tongues, to explain what it is, would basically eliminate 90% of what you see speaking in tongues today. Oh, yeah, I know that verse, yeah. But it's saying the Spirit is making the groans, not you. Yeah, it's the Spirit making those groans that can't be heard. They're not articulated because it's between the Holy Spirit and the Father. The Spirit is interceding for us when we can't even see for ourselves. And I think that that's, that's great. And there's times I'm groaning in the Spirit. There's times I can't pray. I'm on my hands and like, oh, you ever been like that? You're just groaning in, in the spirit because you don't even know how to articulate. But God, the Holy Spirit, intercedes us with words that only he could describe. That's not speaking in tongues. 
That's not the gift of glossolalia, speaking in a known language, right? What do we see in the book of Acts? It's a known language. It's a language that could be understood, and it's a language that is that is cogent, and it is it is it is something that is 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 known. Um, there's a difference between that and ecstatic utterances, which is just the processing of syllables in an unrestrained, uncontrolled manner. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Somebody tell me about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Oh, happiness, peace, and joy, the Holy Ghost. What else? Peace, kindness, self-control. Who said self-control? Self-control. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, when I was a Pentecostal, I went to classes to learn how to speak in tongues because you couldn't do anything unless you speak in tongues. Now, just think about this. If you have to go to a class to be taught how to do it, now something's not right there, right? If this is clearly a gift of the Spirit and the Spirit moves you as he gives you utterance, I don't need someone to train me how to do it. But I remember going to the class and I remember the pastor saying, let yourself go. Don't think. Lose all restraints. Lose control of yourself. That's exactly contrary to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit says the fruit is self-control. Not letting myself go. Letting myself go and being uninhibited is exactly, it's the flesh. It's always the flesh and it'll wind up in the flesh. Well, that's a whole nother, I don't want to get, I'm going to get to this all in a minute. Um, but this brings me to the question then as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 14. But before I do that, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12 to 13 tells us this. Just as there is one body and it has many members we are all members of the same body though many are one body so it is with christ for in one spirit we were all baptized into the body all of us are baptized into into christ jews and greeks and slaves and free we're all made to drink of one spirit so there's once you get past the the, the conversion experiences or the the milestones of the book of acts everybody who comes to christ is filled with the holy spirit everyone's baptized in the spirit but not everyone has the gift of speaking in tongues. Why? Because if you look at chapter 12 and the rest of the chapter, it says to God, some gives the gift of prophecy, some the gift of tongues, some the gift of healing, some the gift of discernment, some the gift of giving. In other words, everybody has the gift that the Holy Spirit decides. We don't all get the same gift. We all get a specific gift the Holy Spirit wants to give to you, and not all of us get all of them. And that's okay. And by the way, the gifts of the Spirit vary. Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter 4. Uh, 1 Peter, which is written later uh, in the church age, when the gifts, when the sign gifts kind of wane, says there's really only two gifts. is the gifts of the ministry, the proclamation of the word, and gifts of serving. But what does Peter tell us the gifts are for? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. It's important we know, because in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, we're told, and I, you, you, we'll go there later, but it is for the edification of the church, for the good of the church, for the good of others. It's never for the good of yourself. It's always for the mutual upbuilding and edification of God's people. Uh, first, um, I'm sorry, uh, First Peter 4. And um, I'll give you the exact verse. Give me a second. My notes are a little scrambled right now. Right, verse 10, each has received a gift. 
And so use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by strength that God supplies in order that in what? Everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We're here to serve the church. We're here to build up the church. We're here to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. All right. Um, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Right, as I said, verse 4 through 11 lists all the different variations of God's gifting. Verse 7 said, each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. I want you to hold on to these thoughts. They're really important. Verse 11 says this, and these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So if the Holy Spirit wills who gets the gift of glossolalia, who are we to start doing training courses and demanding that every believer speak in tongues? Where are we superseding the Holy Spirit and determining who gets the gift of glossolalia? Clearly the gift of glossolalia is one of the gifts here, but it's not for everyone. Verse 8, to one's given the spirit to utter wisdom, to the other knowledge, to another by the same spirit, the gifts of healing, to another miracles, prophecy, a distinguishing of spirits. Now remember the context of Corinth. Corinth was a group of spiritually arrogant people. Remember we get to chapter 1, they're divided, they're fighting with each other, they have factions, who's of Paul, who's of Apollos, who's of Cephas. These are the super spiritual people. These are the people that are so spiritual that they look down upon everyone else because they're not as spiritual as they am, right? And, and one of the marks of their super spirituality, as we see in chapter 14, is that their boast is they speak in tongues. Their understanding of the gift of tongues was, was twisted and perverted by their spiritual arrogance. Chapter 12, 13, and 14, is Paul addresses the whole context of Corinth having spiritual pride with their gifts from the Holy Spirit. And in nestled between chapter 12 and 14 is chapter 13. And what does chapter 13 tell us? It tells us what matters most is love. You could speak in the tongues of angels and move mountains and this and that, but if you have not love, you are what? Just noise. You're worthless if you don't have love. Love is the center of it. And the church of Corinth lacked love. They lacked humility. They were always in a competition to see who was more spiritual, who was more, 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 uh, um, who had the superiority over others. And their boast was that they had this gift of tongues. But as chapter 14 will underscore, everything they did about it was wrong. Chapter 14, <clears throat> he begins with. This and just a few things, like just moving around. I'm, I'm kind of moving through different things here. But look, at, go back to chapter 13. It's one of the arguments you'll often hear when people are saying speak in tongues. Well, we're not speaking in the tongues of men. We're speaking in the tongues of angels. It's a celestial language. In chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. 
Now, just because Paul is saying, I speak in the tongues of men and angels, does that mean that the angels have a specific language that's foreign to us? Well, look at verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, is there anyone who understands all mysteries and all knowledge? He's being Exactly. Just like he says, if I have faith to move a mountain. Has anyone ever moved a mountain? No. Jesus said that. And does that mean you have no faith? No. Moving mountains, God never called us to move mountains. The mountains that are moved are the mountains in our life. It's hyperbolic. It's metaphoric speech. We're not to take something that's metaphoric or hyperbolic to take literally. We, we studied in the last couple of weeks, the angel Gabriel visited first Zechariah and then Mary. What language did Gabriel speak to them? Their language. Watching too many movies. <laughs> You're watching too many movies. But he spoke the language that they understood. He spoke Aramaic, which would have been the common language of that day. He spoke Aramaic. In every case where angels meet men, they speak the language, the native language of the people who are listening. There's no specific... By the way, linguists, like in universities, have studied, like they've really analyzed people from all different nations. They've went to different countries, to different Pentecostal churches, and they've analyzed hours and hours of tapes um, of these of these prophetic or these uh, utterances, and there's no form. There's no. It's just it's just gibberish at the end of the day. It's just the releasing of 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 just you know unconnected thoughts and words and syllables. Um, it's not a language. There's no no distinguished language there. All right. So then we have to de decide then what is the gift of tongues today and is it for today, and that's the question. So. I will answer the question by simply saying this. The gift of the Holy Spirit in terms of speaking in tongues is that in which the recipient has the ability to speak a language they never learned and is unknown to himself or, um, well, I shouldn't say to his hearers, but is a sign he speaks in the language of those who are intended to hear it. And in such case where an interpreter is necessary, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 14, an interpreter is there to interpret the language. Now, I, I've, I've made this case that I'm not a cessationist. And I know that people may disagree with me, and that's because of my understanding of the perfect coming being Christ. I do believe there's an ancillary aspect of this gift. It's still in operation today, but it's not what we see in most churches. I'll give you the example. A good friend of mine, the man who led me to Reformed theology, Joe Capozzi, he passed away in 2012, he died of cancer at a very young age, he was a good friend of mine, and when Joe passed away, um, it was hard for me to, to take, but, but Joe shared with me, he was an elder of a church in Massachusetts, and he, he shared with me an experience he had, and I have no reason to doubt him, because I've read other cases like this from evangelicals, sound evangelicals, he was at Sarah Lawrence College, how many people are familiar with Sarah Lawrence? Right in Bronxville, and and he was he he was a he was a college professor. He was teaching a, a a seminar there, and and in the middle of the seminar, a woman got up and started speaking 
a language that was foreign. It wasn't English. It wasn't English, Marva. And, and nobody knew what she was saying except for one man there. It was an Orthodox Jew who was floored. The guy started weeping. The woman had no idea what she was saying. Her, her mind was not fruitful, as the scripture says. But the man understood directly she was preaching the gospel to this Orthodox Jewish man. He got converted afterwards. He got converted. And now, my friend, God rest his soul, this is a man who was reformed, as reformed could be. And, and, and he passed away and is with the Lord. And I don't think he would ever make something up like that or lie. And like I said, I've read testimony similar to this. And I believe that when the gift of glossolalia is true to the Bible, it's going to be communicating in a language that you never learned. And that miraculously, the hearer hears the gospel it's a sign to them to point them to Christ and bring them to faith in Christ. They're proclaiming the works of God. So with that said, now we get to chapter 14. And I think what we need to do is examine what the Apostle Paul is saying regarding tongues. We're going to kind of read through this text and look at a few things. Notice what he says first, pursue love. Love is primary. Love is what's most important. Love is what we pursue and then earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't say pursue the gifts of the Spirit and earnestly desire love. Pursue love. Love is our pursuit. Love is what we make a priority. And then we desire a gift from God, but we don't make it our pursuit. It's not our primary goal. In other words, the gifting of the Spirit is not the focus of ministry. The focus of ministry is Christ. And when we focus on Christ, we're going to love Him and love others. That's the focus of Christian ministry. Most charismatic churches, the focus is always on the gifts of the Spirit. The whole service is focused on the outward manifestation of the gifts. It, the focus is on the person of the Holy Spirit. And the person of the Holy Spirit has always come to what point us to? Christ. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement. In consolation, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy, for the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now here's the question. Is Paul actually telling people that, that speaking in tongues is a good thing here? Because that's what it would seem on the surface of what he's saying. Remember the context? What are we dealing with in Corinth? What, what, what's the problem? Arrogance, right? What, what did he say in chapter 12? What is the purpose of gifts? The common good. The common good is for building what? The church. Building up others. Yeah. What does he say about speaking in tongues here? Compared to prophecies. So. Well, compared to everything, what does it do? It builds up yourself. Where else in the Bible do you see anywhere it says build yourself up? Is there anywhere in scripture it says focus on you, build yourself up, edify yourself? Where else does it say? So when you see language like that, that's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, it raises a red flag. Is Paul being sarcastic here? Is he speaking to the Corinthians who are in their arrogance, thinking they're superior by speaking in tongues? Is he, is he encouraging them to, to build themselves up? No, he's, incur he's basically saying, you speak in tongues, you don't even know what you're saying in this ecstatic speech. 
And you're not building yourself up, you're building up others. He desires for the true gift of tongues to be... Now remember, we're still in early revelation. The New Testament is not complete. So there were still prophetic utterances given. But if there is a tongue that's going to be given, it should have an interpreter. All right? It should have an interpreter. Verse 6. Brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge of prophecy and teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or even the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. And there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is telling me something. That for the corporate gathering of God's people, you should not be speaking in tongues. Because you're not, you're causing confusion and chaos. People have no idea what you're saying. You don't even know what you're saying. No one's being built up. No one's being edified. Everyone's confused. They're trying to guess what's going on. And where's God in all this? But if there's a prophecy, if there's revelation, then this is good. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. We worship God with a heart, mind, soul, and strength. Again, what part of Scripture commands us to have our minds to be unfruitful? It's as if this is an experience that's being... Is Paul actually saying that we should be unfruitful in our minds? Or is he saying what you're doing is unfruitful? Don't do it. He says if you're going to speak in a tongue, pray for the power to interpret Verse 15, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I don't know about you, but when I pray, my mind must be fruitful. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing mind with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone else in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others in 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, in other words, Paul, who, who has experienced the gifting of the speaking of tongues in his ministry, knows the genuine gifting of it. And he's saying, listen, what you guys are doing, if it's to be done properly, there's to be an interpretation. Someone's got to understand. This has to be a human intelligible language that could be interpreted, that there's a message that points people to be edified. Now, I say this because as a Pentecostal, I was subject, oftentimes, I was in a Pentecostal where someone would get up and speak in a tongue, and then there was an interpretation. But I can tell you, almost every time it was the same person with the same interpretation, and I would hear some stuff that was just outrageous. Don Carson, New Testament theologian, gives an example of a friend of his who goes to a charismatic church as, an, as, a, as a test. And what he does is he gets up, he's a Greek scholar. He recites John chapter 1, verse 18 to 30. That's a lot in Koine Greek. Now, if you do that, everyone's going to think he's speaking in tongues, right? He actually is speaking in an intelligible language. It's all Greek to me, but it's an intelligible language. Now, they waited for the interpretation. 
And guess what? Someone got up and said, thus saith the Lord, and gave something completely different. What does it tell you? It tells you that the church doesn't understand what the gift of tongues is. The church definitely doesn't understand what the gift of interpretation is. And that interpreter has no idea what they're doing. They do not have the gift of interpretation or the gift of tongues. And you're lying. I don't think they're lying deliberately. I don't think they're lying deliberately. I think they're, they believe it themselves. Pastor, you know they're lying, they're forcing it. Oh, yeah. They tell you, you want to speak in tongues? Say, I want a hundred. I want a hundred. Say that. They do terrible things. I can tell you this. From being a Pentecostal, I do believe that there are some people who know what they're doing is wrong. But I believe there's a lot of people who are just don't know any better and they just want to be part of God's people they want to be part of the church misled. and they think they're misled they think it's the right thing to do so they force themselves to say gibberish I did it I did it I was so a Pentecostal truth? huh were you being truthful no I wanted to be part of the church and I, I forced myself to speak gibberish just to be accepted I did it and but eventually I couldn't live with myself and I knew it was wrong and I had to come out of it right eventually I couldn't fake it anymore Eventually, I was honest with myself. But when you're in it, sometimes you don't understand it. It's built on a lot of emotionalism. And when emotions take over, people don't think clearly. By God's grace, he delivered me from that. Go ahead. But then again, they tell you you're not supposed to understand it. So, so that's why there's so much deception in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's a learned behavior in, in, in many of these cases. But again, this doesn't mean that the gift doesn't exist. Just... What we're seeing lots of times, as we're going through chapter 14, we're seeing much of what happens in the modern church is not, um, is not biblical because it's not regulated according to the word. Uh, so look at this, verse um, 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants and in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. It was a sign of judgment. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign for believers, uh, for, not for unbelievers but for believers. If I therefore, the whole church, listen, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and the outsider unbeliever enters, will they not say that you're out of your mind? You know how many times that happened to me when I was a Pentecostal? I'll never forget I invited my family to church. I was a young Christian. And I, all I wanted them to do was believe the gospel. And I was praying, Lord, I pray people don't go crazy today. You know, because when you're Pentecostal, you never know when it's going to be one of those days where everyone just lets loose. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's calm. Sometimes it's just, oh boy, it's three hours. It's, it's crazy. And so this was one of those Sundays where everybody just let loose around me. <laughs> everybody was speaking in tongues. And my family was so turned off, they never wanted to come to church again. They said, you guys are crazy. But that's exactly what it says here. You're not supposed to all do it at once. You're not supposed to do it at once. On the other hand, prophecy, which we said last week, is the gift of preaching. If an unbeliever, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called an account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he'll worship God and declare that God is really among you. The preaching of the word is what brings conviction. It brings repentance. Your mind is fruitful. You understand. 
Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. You can't just all come in and everybody have something to say. This can't be a free-for-all is what Paul is saying. If any speak in a tongue, listen, let there be only two or more at, or at most three let each one take a turn and make sure there's someone to interpret. And if there's no one to interpret, let them be silent. Speak to himself and God. How many Pentecostal churches do you see operate like that? Or you can all prophesy one by one so that you may learn and be encouraged in the spirit of the prophets or subject to the prophets. For God is not the God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, if there's anything to desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If you go to most Pentecostal state churches today, who are the ones leading all the glossolalia and speaking in tongues? Women. Most Pentecostal churches are, are run by women pastors. You go through chapter 14... And 90% of Pentecostal churches are breaking scripture one by one of all these things we saw. Therefore, most of what we're seeing is not biblical. Am I saying that these are bad people? No, I think they're well-meaning people. I just think they're confused, they're misled. I think that they're, you know, they're, they're letting their emotions govern them rather than what truth is. Any questions or comments? Go ahead, Pastor. Absolutely, and I think the gift has a purpose, and the purpose is to point people to Christ, and and it is speaking in a human language, a known language, that people can understand and interpret. I think we have to be careful also of this, and I'm going to get two words up here. Alright, you see those two words? Descriptive and normative. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are descriptive. Right? It describes in John 13 what Jesus did the night before he was betrayed. He washed his disciples' feet. But that is not normative. It's not prescribed. It's described, but it's not prescribed. The scripture doesn't tell us that we should wash people's feet. When Jesus says, wash one another's feet, he's speaking more about serving one another. It's not literal. It's a description. There are other parts in the Bible uh, that are descriptive. When Jesus says, you know, do not take a cloak and take no sandals when you go to preach the gospel. 
Does that mean we should go into the street barefoot with no clothes and preach the gospel? No, that's not what it means. It's descriptive. It's metaphoric, right? We have to be careful that we don't take which is descriptive and make it normative. A lot of what's going on here in these isolated chapters is describing unique situations in redemption history, but is not the norm for the rest of the church. Nowhere else in the New Testament is the topic of speaking in tongues even addressed. It's not even described anywhere else in the New Testament. This is a particular issue happening in the church of Corinth, and it was an issue that was a result of their superior spirituality, their arrogance, and it was a, ma a false manifestation of the true gift of glossolalia. We don't start looking at the descriptions, particularly when Paul is using hyperbole or sarcasm to address the church it's in sin and say, well, this is what we should be doing today. If we take, however, the prescription of 1 Corinthians 14 and regulate our worship in the way that's listed there, we would not see half of what we see in Pentecostal churches today. Just this one alone, where it says about women being silent in the church, that eliminates 99% of Pentecostal churches. So almost all of them are run by women. I was talking to the sister recently uh, here in Hartsdale who runs a Pentecostal church. We were thinking of, of trying to take it over a couple of years ago. We, a wonderful sister. We had a good conversation. And praise the Lord. You know what she said to me? She was working through God's word. She says, Bob, I've come under conviction that I should not be a pastor as a woman. Amen. And I said, praise God. You know, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't want to get in here because I was trying to make a deal with her. But I'm like, you know what? Praise God. This is a woman who fears God. She's studying the word and she's coming to this conviction and she's leaving the ministry. And, and I think that if you, you, you sincerely want to do what's right, you're going to follow scripture. You're going to want to do things biblically. God can't contradict his word. And so with that said, I... Yeah. Um, that's in chapter 13. It's the end of chapter 13. Um, verse 8. You know, love never ends. It's for prophecies. They'll pass away. For tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So why can't we accept that? Why can't we accept that? Uh, well, again, as I said when we first started this series on spiritual gifts, there's two views. Because you got to look at verse 10. Verse 10 is the question. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's the perfect? There are some who say that that's the canon of Scripture. And there are others who say that's the second coming of Christ. I believe it's speaking of the second coming of Christ, uh, Marva, because uh, when you look, look at it now in verse 12, it says, Now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. I think the perfect coming is speaking about the face and face beatific vision when Christ returns. And so all these things, not just tongues and and, and, and prophecy, but knowledge and everything will pass away when Christ comes because when Christ comes, this whole world will be done away with. So I do believe that these gifts waned in their significance once the kingdom of the God was established and the gospel went forth. We still see ancillary aspects of it. But to your point is this, it did cease to exist almost entirely until, like I said, 1907 in Azusa. So is God doing something different all of a sudden? 
Um, I don't think so. I don't, I don't buy it. I was a Pentecostal. I knew the whole Azusa Street Lateran movement theology. It's not biblical. And so are there ancillary gifts like my friend Joe who heard that testimony of the guy speaking and the woman speaking in Hebrew? I think absolutely. Um, I've heard of cases of missionaries where they're, to your point, you know, in an area, remote area, never learned the language, and all of a sudden they, they know it, they preach the gospel. Hasn't happened to Caleb. Caleb still has to do the hard work of translating. So it's not the normative experience of a believer. It's not the, it's the exception. So I, 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 would, I would have to say, Marva, that while the cessationists will say it all ceased with the perfect being the canon, I, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not thoroughly convinced of that. Maybe I will be one day, but I'm not 100%. By the way, John MacArthur has a great uh, sermon series on this. And one of the things that he brought up, which I found very interesting, was um, how many former Pentecostals have come out and written books on this subject. Um, one guy from Oral Roberts University gives his own testimony how God delivered him from it but how guilty he felt for training people how to speak in tongues. And in almost all these cases, I say, let yourself go, just be uninhibited, just let the, work, let the syllables flow out. They always tell you, don't think. They think being unfruitful in your mind is a good thing. Paul is actually saying it as a, a sarcasm. He's not, he's not, nowhere does the scripture say to be unfruitful in your mind. But in these charismatic circles, they say, try not to think about... What does that sound? It sounds like transcendental med meditation. It sounds like New Age theology. You know, sit there like with your arms crossed. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not biblical. My mind should be fruitful. My mind should be edified. My mind should be built up. My mind should worship God. I worship God with my heart, my mind, my soul, and my strength. Any other questions or comments? Jason? I think what you mentioned about... Since, like you said, like the linguists, the linguistics were looking at all the languages and not seeing it, but then they say, "Oh, we're speaking the tongues of angels," and then you kind of be like, "Okay." I guess then, because it's you know, first, like the, the street revival, lady, she wasn't really speaking Chinese, and okay, it's not Chinese, and we're speaking tongues of angels. Then it's like, how how do we prove that? Because you can't you can't anymore that if someone came up to me and says Bob you know I don't think you should be preaching through the gospel of Luke and I said okay why because God told me can I prove that can I disprove it right and that's what some of these things you you could say something like that God told me or I'm speaking in the tongues of angels. So you basically, all reason goes out the window at this point. And it's a way of, of basically saying, you can't challenge me. All right? So what if, what if the person came to me and said, God told me, don't preach through the Gospel of Luke. I said, okay, God told me to preach through it. Who's God speaking to? Right? Next time someone says to you something, they said, God told them. Counter and say, well, God told me the opposite. <laughs> Watch them be confused for a moment. They'll have to think about that one. Because God can obviously be talking to both of us as two different things, right? Somebody's got the truth and someone's wrong.
It's the law of non-contradiction. But you see, when we, when, when we become unfruitful with our minds and lean into our emotions and lean into our feelings, lean into experiences and lean into letting go and letting, 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 uh, letting loose and losing control, and anything goes. Now, I say, that be, I say this with, with care because I have Pentecostal friends and family. Not family, but I have Pentecostal friends that I love dearly. And, and I think there are a lot of Pentecostals who are brothers and sisters of Christ and in many ways are better Christians than we are. So I'm not in no way judging people here. I just think that the practice of what we see in most charismatic churches today is unbiblical. Um, I don't agree with it, but that doesn't mean I, I disregard um, Pentecostals. They're still our brothers and sisters in Christ when we get to heaven. You know, we're going to find out that uh, there's a lot of people who we thought wouldn't be there will be there. So it isn't always about being right, you know. Love, remember, pursue love. Love covers all. And, 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 and I think it's important as Christians that we, we unite in love with those, even if they have different views of us, even if they're dead wrong, um, because you don't know where Christ will bring them. Right? Many people that came to this church over the years were Pentecostal. God delivered them. I was a Pentecostal. God, God brought me out of it. And, and, and there's many people who have that experience. So, All right. Um, we're going to close, but is there any more questions or comments before we do? You guys were, you guys sat through quite a bit today. Anyone else? All right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Joe, can you close this in prayer? So God, we thank you for today. Thank you for uh, giving us the gift of life, bringing us to service this morning. And God, I pray uh, that we take everything we learned today, apply it to our lives, and thank you for uh, our time. And may us all go in peace. And be with us this week. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'm just going to ask if everybody could um, help a little in just cleaning up. Uh, many hands make light work. Thank you.